Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. Secure Talk is brought to you by Adequest, your cybersecurity and compliance partner. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Jim Bowers, who is a security architect for TBI. TBI is a Chicago based telecommunications master agent. And Jim is an authority in cybersecurity. He has about 20 years of in depth security engineering knowledge across several verticals, including finance, healthcare, manufacturing, and technology. He has experience uh, that ranges from architecting, uh, architecting complete security and infrastructure projects to assessments for vulnerabilities, uh, understanding risk management, uh, doing, uh, conducting phishing and training simulations, as well as uh, DDoS mitigations, endpoint protections, and managed security oper- uh, operation centers, or SOCs. Morning, Jim. How are you today? Good morning, Mark. Doing great. Uh, no breaches today, so so far it's pretty good. <laughs> no breaches, and and hopefully wherever you're at, no major weather or climatic events going on. <laughs> the country's kind of all upside down right now. It definitely is. I'm pretty lucky. I'm in the Carolinas, so we have some sunny weather and looking good here. Excellent. So- well, I I took a uh, a long road trip south, and I'm because I'm normally up in Seattle, and we got hit by a bunch of uh, snow this week. But I'm down, and I'm looking out the window at uh, palm trees and sunshine. I'm down in the, the Palm Springs area, and it's very, very nice. I can understand why people live down here. Um, I can too. Love yeah. Palm Springs. Yeah, it's awesome. Hey, um, Jim, before we jump in, I, you know, I, I, I introduced you, but I, I maybe like to talk a little bit um, before we jump into uh, you know, the, the, the meat of the show, a little bit about... Um, what what you do with uh, TBI because I I you know I know that TBI is a, a master agent but I just like to you know kind of drill down on that and that'll maybe set the stage for you know the the, the rest of the the show. Absolutely, Mark. So uh, um, actually, at TBI. So TBI, you're absolutely correct. Is a master agent. So I am part of their tech guru team, and that's a a group of tenured architects in each discipline as well as engineers that. Uh, enable our partners to leverage as an engineering architectural resource. So we, we really provide all of that engineering support to any partner at TBI. I'm the cybersecurity expert um, within that uh, the tech guru team, and I really work on a couple facets. So I help, you know, from that business discussion on any partners, uh, solution-based selling uh, into from a cybersecurity perspective, perspective and engineering for any of our partners. The other critical piece is I look at our cybersecurity vendor portfolio to ensure that our vendor portfolio falls in line with the defense and depth approach or the NIST framework. And we have vendors that can really provide our partners with a solution no matter where an organization is in their cybersecurity journey or cybersecurity posture, as well as provide solutions in that defense and depth approach. So those are really the two critical areas that, that I do uh, within TBI as an organization. Well, thank you, and that's helpful. And I, I towards the end of our our conversation, I'd like to come back a little bit and touch on a little bit more on what TBI does, uh, because I, I, you know, the company I work with, Adequest, is is a Microsoft partner, and it's interesting to see the the different types of service paradigms etc. out there. And I, I'm re- I really like to learn more. Um, but before we do that, 
Let's, um, you know, I, I looked, I introduced your background and, you know, you've got a, a very interesting and an extensive um, IT background. And at some point, you know, you did uh, move more with a, more into a heavy focus on um, cybersecurity. Can you explain a little bit like why and how that happened? I mean, in some cases, people, it's kind of like an accidental career growth and some people do it more um, in, a, in a more planned manner. What happened in your case? Uh, well, I, that's a great question. So uh, it was more, I guess, on the accidental side out. So in the first half of my career, I really worked on low latency distribution architectures and networking for voice, video, and financial uh, trading. So I uh, worked for a, a company called Savage Communications. And, and when uh, kind of halfway in my career with them, I spent about 15 years there, is really when we started to see the threat actors use DDoS attacks, which is distributed denial of service attacks, and, and uh, really to disrupt businesses. And it was kind of interesting. I'm sitting at home with my son, and we bought him an Xbox One uh, for Christmas, and we're all excited to hop on Xbox Live, and we couldn't get connected. So I was like, why can't we get connected? And it was a distributed denial of service attack that they did. So me being in the technology industry and with Savvis, which was a big carrier uh, and hosting provider, uh, I was like, you know, this this is unacceptable. So worked with some of the security guys there at uh, at Savvis, and really that's when kind of we started to look at rolling out a cloud-based DDoS mitigation. Um, so that's really when I started to make the shift. It really kind of resulted uh, on an Xbox One and a Christmas and unable to connect and me being a tech guy and an engineer trying to solve stuff, I uh, went back to the company I was with and said, hey, this is starting to become a lot more prevalent. Uh, you know, Microsoft got attacked and we started to see the rise in DDoS. And that's really where we started to work on providing a, a solution to help organizations combat that type of attack from a threat actor. Well, necessity is the mother of all invention and, and, and getting your kids game to work right, I guess, was <laughs> the, right, the right incentive. Um, well, maybe can you talk a little bit about how the, the threat landscape has changed over the years? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, it, boy, has it changed. So, um, you know, I kind of start with that DDoS. I kind of follow on that component we just kind of talked about. So initially, threat actors were really in the business of disrupting business, right? Uh, a lot of it was done through geopolitical, such as anonymous um, organizations, really, where they, an organization or a big corporation, uh, they didn't align with their, their methodology or political uh, standing, and they started to attack them and disrupt the business. Now, that has completely evolved now into more of a monetary standpoint. We've always had the, you know, the big uh, nation states, which is Russia and China, that will always try to attack from a, uh, a standpoint of disruption, right, to steal intellectual property rights. Um, to we just had a recent one with uh, Russia and to uh, multiple areas within our government. Um, so really, it started to come from a disruption of business now into a monetary aspect, right? They realized that I can make a lot of money, uh, not just disrupting business, but holding businesses hostage, right? And that's the, that's the ransomware and the malware aspect. And it's like anything else, as technology evolves, so did the threat actors evolve, and they keep up with the technology. Today, they're heavily funded, so they're they're very very um, 
crafty in what they do. So it's evolved from a disruption aspect more into a monetary aspect. And as technology grows within organizations, as organizations move to the cloud, as organizations move voice into the cloud, and we can talk about how the pandemic has has caused a huge disruption, that in turn has, has opened up the landscape for the threat actors. Uh, it, it's grown exponentially. So think of it like anything else. Think of threat actors as salespeople. Um, they want to make money, and that's what they're in the business to do. Um, and they go after the big companies, but they also go after the small companies. So it's really evolved from the disruption to a monetary aspect. Uh, and also, we'll always have those threat actors that are going for the intellectual property rights and disruption of government and democracies and so forth. Well, you just mentioned the the um, the pandemic and the effect, or you, I, I think you implied that it almost accelerated the um, or widened the threat environment. Um, can you explain a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, threat actors are loving the environment we're in today. And, and let's think about what the pandemic did to organizations. We were all forced to all of a sudden work remotely. So you have multiple organizations that, you know, did have remote workers. Uh, Mark, I'm sure you've connected into your company through a, a, a secure remote access, but that grew exponentially. So what organizations realized was, oh my gosh, I got to become more agile, right? This model is not working. I don't have my employees in my brick and mortar facility anymore. They're working from home. They're working from Starbucks. So you had the, the huge influx and increase of remote workers, and that causes a lot of challenges for organizations. Also what causes challenges is, uh, let's say most organizations had started that digital transformation, but they weren't fully there. So you still had applications in their main data center. They weren't up in the cloud. And now you don't have your end users, again, in that office accessing those applications over the local area network. Now they're having to access it remotely. So that in turn caused companies to accelerate their digital transformation, accelerate moving voice to the cloud. And we're in the middle of this. Figure out ways to securely, uh, securely allow remote employees to access that data. Uh, IP set VPNs are just not cutting it um, from a secure remote access. So when you accelerate anything, there's room for errors and mistakes. Land infrastructures are changing, right? So we have traditional hub and spoke models where you have all these remote offices connecting in over private networks to a main location to access applications. That's no longer viable because now your applications aren't there. That perimeter is eroding, right? And when that perimeter erodes and your applications are now from the cloud, it provides great amount of challenges for organizations. And that network changes. They're having to, to open up more uh, exit points or internet connections at these remote offices because now they're accessing applications, not in the data center, but up in the cloud. And when you do that, you have more entryways into their environment. So again, that perimeter is opening up. So the pandemic has truly accelerated. FBI, according to the statistic, 500% increase in ransomware attacks. That's tremendous. Huge increase in attacks on cloud-based services. Microsoft is seeing, 100, I think, 117 million different variants a week on attacks through email. So threat actors know the pandemic has disrupted businesses. 
They know businesses have to become more agile. They know where the data is. And that's where security has to follow, where the data is, is moving. And when all you take all those pieces into play, there's room for error. And the threat actors know that, and they leverage that to get in and do ransomware, malware, steal credentials, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, we've seen so many organizations that were just overnight forced to um, facilitate remote work and scrambling for a roadmap in terms of how to do that. And, you know, when you're anytime that you're scrambling, there's an opportunity for errors, right, for mistakes. And there's there's all these different scenarios that uh, organizations haven't thought of in advance. They say, well, just take take your laptop home and go to work. Or, and uh, that's uh, obviously an issue. I'm just curious um, your thoughts on the the prevalence of crypto in terms of you know this easy means of payment as a kind of accelerant towards uh, the ransomware attacks. I mean, do you see that as part of the equation? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the main drive behind cryptocurrency or Bitcoin is the ability to um, not be able to trace it. Right. And when you're not, it's like anything else. If I'm going to do a, a, a tr- traditional crime, I'm not going to, or if I'm going to purchase something illegally off the black market, I'm not going to use my credit card because it could be traced back to me. So the number one and probably the, the only form of payment in the ransomware is going to be Bitcoin. So the rise of that and the, the inherent security and non traceable aspect of Bitcoin really enabled right, this to grow because they don't have to worry about being tracked on getting payment uh, from that aspect. It's very interesting. I, I can run a, a live ransomware and, uh, and you can see they will have support desks. They'll have email to help the organization set up their Bitcoin. So that is a great point, Mark. Bitcoin has definitely accelerated and opened up the market for not just your threat actors, not just your nation states, not just your organized crime. You can buy ransomware on the dark, uh, on the, on the dark web, uh, ransomware as a service. And now that you have this ability to get paid without being traced, it's opened that up tremendously to a broader audience of people. And also think about the pandemic. We have a lot of people in financial strain. And when people are in financial strain, they find ways to make money. And now that you can do ransomware as a service, hey, that's a way of making money. I don't have to know how to do it. I can buy the list. I can buy the programs. I can get paid without being traced. So now you have a lot more than just the organized crimes and the nation states. You have what I like to call script kiddies, or you have people that are not even technologists or hackers leveraging this this, uh, ransomware to make money, if that makes sense. Totally. And, you know, one thing I think about is, because I'm on this road trip and, you know, you check into um, different hotels or you go to coffee shops and, you, you know, I, I've got to work and I've got, uh, I've got to access uh, the Internet. Um, I, I'm just curious, like, how many of these public Wi-Fis are, are hacked to some degree, right? I mean, you know, you've got, you've got your man in the middle attacks. And I, I, you know, I was like, well, it's probably OK. I mean, this seems like a nice hotel. But, you know, it just takes one person, like you said, that was experiencing some financial tra- uh, strain. And they've said, hey, you know, you, I, I've got a way to, to go ahead and intercept somebody's login credentials, you know, when they're using this Wi-Fi. Um, I, I'm just wondering, how, like, how much of that is actually going on as well? Oh, my gosh. So 
you know, I love being in security, but yet I can't stand being in security because exactly stuff you say. Um, you know, I have Cali Linux. It's a hacking distribution. You can download it free. It has all the hacking tools. I can go on YouTube and watch a video. I taught my 17-year-old son how to hack a wireless network in 30 minutes. So, so, so you ta- you taught your you've taught your 17-year-old son how to pay for his college education. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now I told him to make sure and use Bitcoin for payment so we couldn't get traced, but at least it takes the burden off of me. But that's you know, that's the scariest thing, right? Broadens that landscape for exactly what you said. Um, I'm working for Starbucks. I'm working from home. Is my home network secure? I've got an Alexa. I got a you know Google Home. I got crop pots that are connected. Those are ways threat actors get in. And if they can get into through those devices, they can ride into your computer over into your corporate network. So yes, it's it's very prevalent. It happens more than you think it does. Um, simply for the fact that it, the tools are there. It's easy. And you don't have to be a nerd like me to do it, if that makes sense. Totally. And it's funny because I, I have uh, three boys myself and they, uh, whenever I ask them a question, uh, something they don't know, the first thing they do is they call up their, their, their favorite uh, virtual assistant, either, you know, Alexa, Cortana or Siri, <laughs> and, and just repeat the question back. And, you know, I can just envision, you know, <laughs> so Siri, what's my password <laughs> or, or, you know, <laughs> It's just the world we're living in. It's kind of it's kind of crazy, and it, it it just makes, I guess you know your job, um, and and anybody who's in the security space that job that much more difficult and challenging. Um, you know, you you touched on that pandemic earlier, and I I actually read an article um, that where you were interviewed, and you were talking about the um, the attacks on COVID research organizations and organizations who were developing the vaccine. That's kind of scary. You know what? It, it, it really is scary. And for multiple facets, right? If you look at, uh, you know, cyber criminals, they are attacking the research facilities. Russian hacking group APT was one of the first very, very early targeting U.S. and U.K. Canadian research. I mean, most recently, we had a hacker steal information of COVID-19 vaccines and a cyber attack against the European Union. And they published the data online, but they published it, the data manipulated, right? And what does that do? It causes disinformation designed to undermine the trust in vaccines, right? So it's not just getting the data. So, you know, we're all suffering from this pandemic. So anybody that's able to produce a a viable vaccine looks good throughout the world, right? And helps our population. Um, you look at most of it is coming from the nation states, Russia, North Korea, China, and to disrupt our democracy. And, yeah, it's very scary because at the end of the day, what that does is it makes people less confident in going to get that vaccine. Um, also, which is even more scary in my opinion, there's possibly the possibility of if I'm able to go and manipulate that data, not take that data but manipulate it, what are the chances of when we start mass producing this? We start implementing the Defense, uh, Defense Control Act, right? Is there a chance that those mass producers that are not Pfizer or not Moderna can make that vaccine with manipulated data? So, yeah, it, that, that is probably one, one of the most eye-opening um, interviews I did and the reality of knowing that this is happening 
um, not just to steal the data, but to manipulate what's called disruption and disinformation is, is really scary. In my yeah, opinion. the the disinformation over the last few years is, in my opinion, one of the most disturbing and, and, and biggest threats to, as you said, to our democracy. And it's just people don't know who you can trust. Now, I don't want to spend the rest of the, our time, um, you know, scaring people, but I do want to ask one more question on on the threat side, and then and then we'll we'll jump into some of the some of the solutions that are out there. But um, you know, I've read that um, healthcare data is some of the most sought after information or data by hackers. Um, why is that? All right, now, now I'm going to really scare you, Mark, because, all right, let's think about this. Um, let's think about, again, I'm going to go back to the root of why threat actors mainly do what they do, and it's, it's monetary. So if I'm able to get healthcare data, and I, I can't believe I'm going to talk to you about this, but let's say, for example, um, we have devices and medical devices that are highly connected, right? Um, doctors use it. Pacemakers, for example, have ability for doctors to monitor those. So if I'm able as a threat actor to get that healthcare data, and I'm able to get a list of individuals that have, let's say, a pacemaker, some device that's critical for their health, implemented them, that's connected, that's an IoT device, and I can get that information, and I can hack into that pacemaker, then what do I do? I can leverage that and say, hey, Mr. Person or Mrs. Person, if you don't pay me X amount of dollars, I'll shut down your pacemaker. So it's starting to get to the point where that is why that data is so critical because it's broadening the landscape for the target audience that threat actors can do. It's like any, any organization, any business. I want to increase the demand. I want to be able to, to sell my goods to a broader audience. Threat actors are the same way. How can I get a broader audience to get money from? And if I've got healthcare data and I understand uh, what this individual has from a healthcare perspective, or I have information that may be damning to that person for, to an employer standpoint, right? Let's talk about uh, psychological issues that maybe an employer doesn't know. It's personal data. Again, I can leverage that data to to gain money, not only from an organization, but a person. So that's why I think healthcare information will continue to be targeted and will probably increase because I'm starting to see a lot more attacks on IoT devices. And healthcare, there are a lot of IoT devices. There's devices that within a surgery or within a hospital, not just with an individual, but help keep with people alive. So if I'm able to go into those systems, now I got the hospital paying. So it's just all about making money. So that's why I don't see any deceleration of going after health data. I think it will continue to increase simply for the fact that we're using more devices that are more connected and uh, within a health organization standpoint. And that's more areas for threat actors to make money. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is the fact that, you know, Traditionally, we've thought of cybersecurity as related to, you know, computers and networks. And now it's basically any device at all that's connected. And it could be just a remote sensor. You know, I mean, it's in, in, in a lot of organizations, they don't have that in their kind of uh, in, in their eyesights when they're thinking about um, cybersecurity. OK, you've sufficiently scared me. 
Um, <laughs> now tell You're me. You're so welcome. Have a great day, Morgan. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> I'm going to go hide under the bed, unplug everything. Um, well, you know, I mean, you're in the position of coaching and working with organizations. Why don't you talk about um, some quick wins or some things, some things that organizations can do right out of the gate to immediately kind of uh, harden their their security posture, if there are any. Absolutely. Oh, there's absolutely there's there's absolutely so that's a, that's another great question. Um, so I you know I do want to take a, a quick step back. So traditionally organizations look at cybersecurity as a insurance policy, right? Uh, it's like insurance in your car. Um, you know, something may happen. I may get some malware, but, you know, do I really need to spend all this money? So I had to prove a lot through my career to organizations that return on investment. Well, the great thing, one of the good things that's come out of the pandemic is that's disrupted that mindset with CISOs and CIOs and CFOs. It's not a ROI because they know they have to do it. They were forced to do it, right? You're forced to do it due to all the changes that are happening within their environment. I kind of touched earlier, Mark, on you have to take a defense in depth approach to security, multiple layers, right? A layered approach to security. There is no single silver bullet that is going to stop a threat actor. Uh, in fact, if you look at NIST, there's, there's protect and detect. I feel that the tech portion is the most critical part in, a, in an organization's posture. So, I wish I could tell you that, hey, go buy this firewall, or hey, go get this antivirus or endpoint protection and you're safe. Well, that's not the case, right? So quick wins for organizations, there's, there's, some, there's a multiple layers in it, but three main things I see that are the most critical for organizations to have in place and provide them the quickest wins and increase their posture. First of all, end user awareness, cybersecurity awareness training, and phishing simulations. Endpoints are the number one attack vector for threat actors. I like to call them starting points. So they're gonna go after that endpoint. And who's using that endpoint? The human. We are the weakest link in that, in that posture, in that layered approach. Especially think about how we're working today. We're not working in the office. We're not in that psychological mindset of I gotta put on my, my slacks, I gotta put on my my jacket, I got to commute to the office. I'm in the mindset of work. I'm talking to you right now in my umbros in a t-shirt. I'm working on my work computer, but I could go downstairs to my, my uh, kitchen and work on my iPad, uh, iPad, right? And access my email. So the ability to make those end users aware, don't click the easy button, right? Show them what a suspicious email is. Reinforce it, in my opinion, is one of the biggest wins you can get. Because if a threat actor can't get you to click it, they can't get in. So that's just one of the biggest, easiest wins I see. Second piece is endpoint protection. You've got to, a lot of organizations have legacy antivirus. You've got to step that up to an EDR, endpoint detection response platform, such as CrowdStrike or Carbon Black, I don't mean to plug anybody, there's a bunch of them out there. But threat actors are starting to use fileless malware, which means signature-based endpoint detection doesn't pick it up. So you have to have robust endpoint protection that can be monitored. And I'll talk about this, my third piece, can be monitored. There's events coming out of there. And the new endpoint protection technologies enable you to isolate that machine. 
so I could stop it quicker from working across my infrastructure. So end user awareness and phishing training, endpoint protection, and the last biggest thing I, I see is SOC the service or uh, MDR, managed detection response. I cannot, as a security architect or engineer, stop anything I can't see. If I don't have visibility across your infrastructure, across the security devices within, whether firewall, whether they're your servers, what servers are in AWS or up in Azure or up in Google Cloud, if I don't have visibility into your wireless infrastructure and, and able to take all of that rich data and correlate it, then I can't stop it quickly. The average time malware sits on an infrastructure is 250 days. Think about that. That's a long time for that threat actor to sit there, to harvest data, to steal credentials. So if I don't know they're there, if I don't have visibility at those alerts, I don't have somebody watching them, I can't stop it and detect it quickly. The earlier I detect something on what they call the kill chain, the less damage it's going to do. So those are some of the three critical pieces I think that organizations can truly beef up their cybersecurity posture and start to turn the tides or, or put the ball in their court against the ball in the threat actor's court. I think that's some excellent advice. And um, yeah, I just, I just want to go back and listen to that all again, because I, I was tr taking notes as fast as you were talking, but that's, I think, really, really um, valuable there. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about, I don't want to, maybe about the, the evolving threat, uh, <clears throat> the threat landscape, but actually then continue on and talk about how the, um, the defense uh, strategy or the defense landscape is evolving as well. I mean, you touched on a couple items there. You talked about SOC as a service, uh, managed detection and response. And for, for, you know, listeners who aren't familiar with those services, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit more about those as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let me try to think of a good way to put it that are familiar with the service. So uh, endpoint protection has come a long way tremendously from the traditional antivirus. Um, that endpoint protection is critical. It's, it's doing multiple facets on the number one attack vector that threat actors have. They're also extending those protections out away from your traditional Macs and Windows boxes to your uh, smart devices, right? You have an, involve, an, an involving of what's called mobile device management now is, is um, universal device uh, endpoint management, right? So it encompasses the ability to have a single pane of glass, the view of all of organizations' devices that are on the network, whether they're BYOD devices. And that's another thing that we've seen a huge increase in influx of. Because again, I talked about it earlier, Mark, we have more people working from home. Not all organizations could assign every individual a laptop. So they allowed them to use their own devices. Um, so that is evolving from that standpoint. Again, it's the visibility across the infrastructure. Think of it as anything from a visibility standpoint. Think of it as a radar. I think that's a good analogy. Um, if I'm looking at a radar, the radar tells me what's in my view, what's airplanes are in my space. An air traffic controller could no way do their job if they didn't have the radar of the planes coming in. How can I stop threats if I can't see what's coming in my network? So the visibility aspect is critical. And it's critical on not just being able to see the threats, but it's enabling organizations to do that digital transformation, to have those changes that are happening 
within their organization from shifting the cloud to moving voice to cloud because now I have visibility. I know when I do those things, I'm going to have potential of a fat finger or I'm going to have potential of a misconfiguration. But if I have that visibility and I'm able to detect it, then that mistake doesn't become as critical as if I don't see it. Hopefully I answered your question. I may have gone off the tangent you did, you did. But I, I think that in a lot of organizations, they feel like they have to do everything in-house. Um, yep. But, but you know, we're seeing, at least where we sit, um, you know, that uh, companies are willing to to look at some of these services as a, as a managed service offering because maybe they don't have the, the resources or the expertise in-house. Are you seeing that as well? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, yeah, so your big banks, your big... Hospitals have the have the funds to have a very big budget for their security operations center, but eighty percent of organizations don't. SMB space don't. Small and medium sized businesses. And one thing I want to stress is threat actors don't care who you are. It's a big misnomer that oh, I'm a small business. I make duct tape. Threat actors are not going to come after me. That's absolutely false. They will come after you. Because you may not have data that they want to sell on the dark web, but you have data that makes your business run. So security is expensive. All the pieces to protect yourself is expensive. Uh, security architects, stock analysts are expensive. And to have a 24 by 7, 365 uh, security operations center is very expensive. I wish I could tell you threat actors like to work between 8 and 5. They don't. They like to work over the weekend. They like to do it after the business is closed. So a lot of organizations and 90% of organizations don't have that money to have an effective stop. So yes, I'm seeing a huge, huge increase of managed service providers, specifically around the managed stock offering, around endpoint detection and response, around vulnerability management programs uh, being outsourced relatively on an accelerated fashion because organizations, this is expensive to, to maintain a robust security posture and managed stock. So that's a very great point. Well, yeah, and another advantage that we see is that, you know, if you're working with a managed service provider that specializes in that security space, that's, you know, that SOC as a service or the managed detection and response as a service, they're so specialized and, you know, they have a vested interest in kind of keeping up to the latest, greatest, whatever the information is, right? Whereas if you're a large organization and that's just, you know, that's just a part of your overall IT or security operation, it's a little bit more challenging for them to keep abreast of that in terms of the latest tools, etc. Um, which brings me up to another point. In terms of TBI, I mean, earlier you mentioned that part of your job is I think you said something with about uh, vendor selection or evaluation. How do you, as an organization, decide with which vendors that you want to work with, or that you think that your customers um, should should you know be aware of? Uh, that's a great question. So it's probably one of the you know as an architect, it's really probably one of the greatest places I could be because I truly can architect solutions without being uh, pigeonholed by a particular vendor. So uh, the main goal for me is really, when I look at vendors, there's multiple facets to come into play with the vendor. Um, you know, not necessarily, I'm not gonna say it's, it's always the biggest, it's the best. So I look at uh, the overall service, the flexibility of the service, the staff behind it, um, 
their operations center, their stocks, depending on what they, uh, you know, their security operations center, their employees, uh, their approach to what tools they're using. And you mentioned a great point earlier, uh, the tools, right? Organizations can't keep up with tools, right? And, and when you go to a managed service, it's, it's, the tools become irrelevant because the managed provider is going to deploy the tools that they want to use to deliver the service effectively, and they'll keep those tools updated and evaluate them on a regular basis. I just dealt with a customer that still had multiple Windows 98 machines running. I know that's a shocker, but you made a great point that they can't keep up with the technology. So at TBI, I really had the unique ability to be agnostic. I can truly architect solutions for my partners and their customers without having to. I've worked at system integrators where they were Cisco Gold partners, and I had to try to fit the Cisco solution into uh, the problem I was trying to solve for that for that customer. And in this case, I don't. So um, I, I I looked at our vendor portfolio. I'm not a big fan of all the big guys always providing all the services. And when I say big guys, the telcos, I won't point them out. I'm more exactly like you said. I'm more into the, the security vendors that specialize in that space. I don't mind going with a cutting edge vendor that's pushing the limits. I'm not going to make that the breadth of my portfolio. But truly, to look at cybersecurity vendors that excel in their space, focus on a particular area in that layered approach, uh, defensive approach aspect, and truly can deliver an exceptional service. I, at TBI, am not in the business of selling tools. I'm in the business of selling managed services and solutions that enable organizations. And that goes back to the point of why TBI is growing is simply the, the great increase in outsourcing of security solutions simply for the fact it's complex. You don't have the talent and you don't have uh, the tools to keep up with. But that's really the unique, unique advantage of TBI. Well, you know, it's interesting because we are a Microsoft uh, security and compliance partner. And so, you know, 95% of what we do is all around or involves the, the Microsoft ecosystem. Um, and, and even then, because, you know, Microsoft has everything from Dynamics to Teams to SharePoint to, to Intune uh, to OneDrive for Business, blah, blah, blah. And, and there's a ton of security tools that are being baked into, you know, the various uh, Microsoft workloads. Even then, it can be very challenging. I mean, you know, one partner might just specialize just on Teams, for example, right? And so one of our challenges is just keeping up and keeping abreast with the different Microsoft tools and the iterations of those tools, et cetera. How do you, uh, TBI, I mean, you know, and I'm sure you, you have a, a formula for this, but how do you deal with multiple vendors, but at the same time, you know, be, be the subject matter expert on those tools? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I stay really busy. Um, that's a great, you know, I, I <laughs> yeah, no, um, you're, you're great. I can't be a subject matter expert in every tool. So, so that's a great point. I work with vendors that work with me and enable me as well. Um, and overarching, you know, being a subject matter expert in the overall arching technology, such as MDR, I don't focus as much on the tools because at the end of the day, there's not that much difference between the tools. It's really how you implement the tools, who's looking at the tools, who understands the data coming out of the tools, right? 
So I'm more concerned about being a subject matter expert in those main disciplines, you know, managed stock, MDR, EDR. Um, I, there's no way I can be an expert in every EDR tool, CrowdStrike, Carbon Black, Sentinel One, Silence. Um, but what I can be an expert is, is how those work. And then if I need to get to the nitty gritty, that's why I form this very close relationship with my vendors, such as uh, CyberSafe is a great MDR provider. Don't mean to do a plug there, but I love working with these guys. Um, they are my experts when it gets down to if I got to do instant response or I got to do forensics. See, I just can't keep up with all of that. I used to do red team testing, but now I'm on the pre-sale side. So I leverage and form those, those relationships with those vendors where I can leverage their expertise and they're solely focused on their service. And that enables me to not be the subject matter expert on every tool and every technology, but be subject matter expert over the overarching and leverage those vendors for the specifics when needed. Makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure on your team that there are people that can go as deep as they need to do on, on, on the tools as needed or that the, the tool provider will enable you, as you said. Um, well, hey, let me ask you uh, one last question. You know, we talked earlier on the, or about disinformation. Where do you go in terms of your job and in terms of the, in the context of cybersecurity and protecting organizations and understanding what's real, what's not? Where do you go? What are the trusted information sources that you use? Um, uh, secure talk. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> of course. Um, that's, where, that's where I go. Um, no. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you're, you're welcome back question. anytime, Jim. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's a great question um, because there is a lot of disinformation. Um, you know, I, you could absolutely Google best MDR protection and probably get some web pages that, hey, may be a landing page to get your information. So, where I go to some trusted, um, you know, I go to some trusted uh, podcasts, and I, I really mainly leverage my vendors, Palo Alto, all those guys, you know, the tools, because I know the information coming from those guys is not different information. So I get a lot of my, of my information off of white papers that the vendors produce, because a lot of times they won't be specific to their tools or their, their products or something. It's an overarching aspect. So Majority of it, I go to those trusted sources that are in this industry, Cisco, Palo Alto, Fortinet, um, you know, CrowdStrike. I used to, I still have a, got a, little, a lot of good relationships with a company called SecureWorks. I worked there before here. And also, I'm in a group of, uh, you know, I've worked with multiple engineers. So we all get together. Um, I have like a little, a little weekly get together of engineers, not weekly, monthly get together of multiple engineers I've worked with over my career and we brainstormed together uh, all the way from stock analysts that are way smarter than me to engineers that sit on the dark web to pre-sales engineers. So, you know, communities of interest that are trusted sources with individuals that I've worked with through my career. But um, I try not to rely on Google a lot. I don't want that Google to take that wrong, but for exactly what you said, there's a lot of disinformation. If you, if you don't think that threat actors are not going to put that disinformation out there, because think about this. They just hacked, uh, what was it, FireEye. FireEye is one of the big vendors. If you don't think they didn't take their tools and reverse engineer them, let's take a, I'm not going to pick, but let's take an endpoint protection. 
threat actors will get that and reverse engineer. So what, what makes you think that if they have not gotten very good at reverse engineering a tool, then they're not going to put this, this information on the website. Hey, this is the greatest tool ever, right? This is a great, get it. I want you to get this X, Y, and Z endpoint protection because they have reverse engineered and they can get past, past it more easily. So I try to stay with uh, individuals I've worked with through my career, uh, reputable vendors within the industry. Uh, I all, you, you can always trust governmental sites, whether it's uh, you know, the cybersecurity division or uh, within the government. I go to those sites some, but mainly it's the vendors and kind of groups I talk with with individuals that I've worked with throughout my career. Well, I think that's some some excellent advice right there. And, you know, especially if, if, if you're a security professional in a smaller organization or you're in a large organization, but there's only, you know, you only have a couple of colleagues on your team, it's hard to kind of keep abreast of what's going on unless you develop that, that community of, of like interests and, you know, develop that network. Um, so thank you very much for that. Really enjoyed having you on the show. And uh, I hope that we can have you back in a few months and uh, and do, the, do it again. Yes, that was wonderful. Uh, I so enjoyed this, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, and I really don't say that lightly. Great podcasts like yours really are great resources. Um, so thank you. This was a, a pleasure. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and